I'm Morgan Davey of Diceratops Presents. Welcome to another mini episode. This one is a bit of a break from Pattern. I'll get to that in a moment. I'll begin the way every communication is beginning right now, which is to say, aren't these strange times? The Diceratops team are all safe under lockdown. We hope you're all keeping well wherever you are as you hear this. We're working out what Diceratops Presents will look like in the months ahead, not ready to announce any plans just yet, but watch this space. In any case, We'll have another podcast for you next week, part two of Jason Statham's Big Vacation, which is substantially crazier than the already quite crazy part one. Coming up in this episode, we have a special report from everyone's favourite holiday half-orc, Fran, and then our main feature. If you're the type of person who looks at the duration of your podcasts, you'll have noticed this is quite a bit longer than our typical mini-episodes. We're featuring today a conversation between myself, Stephen Youngblood, who you know as Randy Dwarf, and Jennifer O'Sullivan of Kick and Rad Productions about a 10-hour long improvised soap opera they presented at the Fringe Festival a few weeks back. It was an amazing show. It was very funny. I wanted to chat to them about it because I, I think there's some things they do um, that gamers of D&D and other RPGs could learn from. It's a really interesting conversation. After that long chat, I will pop back in to close off the episode with a few reflections of my own, including recommending a particular RPG that echoes some of what they did in the 10-hour soap opera. I hope you enjoy the chat. I certainly did. Here's Fran. Um, hello. This is Fran. Uh, so if, like me, you're preparing to spend several weeks uh, in solitude and the voice of your god, which was once omnipresent, has departed, leaving you alone with only your thoughts for company, you may, for the sake of your own mental health, want to make yourself a friend. Today, I'm going to tell you how to make the best kind of friend. A friend that always listens and never talks back. A friend that is low maintenance. And most importantly, a friend that will help you make delicious bread. Yes, I'm talking about a beige slime. First of all, you're going to need to get yourself a big jar or pot earthenware, terracotta, marble. I even once saw this amazing pot made of sand that had been fused together by dragon fire. Look, I don't care as long as it's not metal. Beige slime hates metal. Secondly, find yourself a good supply of clean water. Ideally, collect it upstream from where people do their bathing or washing or shitting or river-based funeral rites. Thirdly, and finally, you're going to need to get yourself some wheat, quite a lot of it, and grind it into a fine powder. If your village has a breadsmith or a dough you may be able to buy some already ground, but be prepared to get out your mortar and pestle. So, take your scales, if you don't have scales, get some scales, and put about a goblet full of your water on one side, and the same amount of your ground wheat on the other. If one side of your scales is higher than the other, keep adding whichever thing is on that side to that side until your scales balance. 
then mix it together in your jar or pot until it's a sticky paste. Don't eat the paste. Cover the pot with your cleanest rag and leave it somewhere where vermin can't get to it. Then the next day, measure out more ground wheat and water and mix it into the first lot. Cover it with the rag again, then leave that until the next day. You'll want to keep doing that for about five days. And at the end of it all, it should, one, smell sour and musty, and two, be all full of bubbles. If that's the case, then congratulations. You've made beige slime. If not, then you somehow fucked it up, and I can't help you. Anyway, uh, good luck with your vow of solitude, I guess. So now here is our long and lovely conversation about the improvised soap opera Enjoy. It all took place over Zoom, so uh, it's a little bit scratchier than normal. We're still figuring out our tech, um, but I think it's well worth the listen. All right, so so I went to see a pretty amazing show in the NZ Fringe, and it ran for a unusually long time. And one of the people in this show was a voice that you will recognize, which is Stephen Youngblood. Hello, Stephen. Hello. How are you doing tonight? Oh, we are doing good tonight. We're doing to we're doing very well very well i think because we are joined by an, another voice someone who was quite crucially involved in this very long show um and that is jennifer o'sullivan jen can you tell us well first of all hello jen hello, hello. Jen's here. that's amazing i'm here it's my voice oh my it's yeah. my voice coming to you from across the internet waves yeah. now wow. your voice actually people will have heard your voice if they've listened to all our episodes because there was the that noir show that we put out lately that you were in <gasps> Yes, I was in that. I was a variety of characters, including Barbara <laughs> Keep, who's my favourite voice I've ever done. My favourite, um, my favourite voice you've ever done too. I loved doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good time. But yes, I am. Um, I'm the director and the producer of and performed in. Uh, what was our show called? This it was it's Soap. Days Anatomy, I think. Days Anatomy. Yes. Thank you. Look, it's only been two weeks, but a million years has passed since oh then. Oh my god. So. Yeah, Bayes Anatomy Animal Hospital. It was an all-day soapathon, or as we said, we called it an all-day residency of the heart, uh, which I I really enjoy coming up with taglines. Um, but yeah, it was a ten-hour improvised soap opera. We had a new episode every hour, and uh, about a dozen characters performed for that those ten hours and just told a single story. Well, a number of stories, but a single narrative uh, over that time. And what yeah, was the was what was the up. what was the character that you played? My character was Dr. Shelley Bay, uh, who was the head of surgery for Bay's Anatomy. Uh, Stephen's character, of course, was the eternal Keith Grant. He is, a, is an immortal being, um, yeah. a fixed point in time, but a different life every every episode. Um, yeah. yeah, no, uh, it's Keith Grant is, is, is a choice I made at the second time I did a soap opera was to keep the same character name that I had from the first soap opera because I couldn't really think of another one. And then I realized that actually that could be a thing. Is that if I keep doing the same character's name, but change the character, that would be neat. However, it doesn't, it seems I don't have as much variety as I thought. 
because um, uh, this is the third soap opera in a row where I have been somebody's mysterious daddy, (laughs) (laughs) secret father, and the second soap where I was this person's um, father. So I feel like um, (laughs) one particular character's actor's father. So there's something that in my character that is very specifically... um, the same and unchangeable and it's not just the name so i need to work on that i but, think um, that's just from being a 10-hour soap opera and the, from the way the show works like so much of the day you spend in character but like three quarters of the character is you you know like which is how i'm I not saying that, <laughs> yeah and i'm not saying that you are at your core a mysterious daddy but now that you've used that phrase, I wish I hadn't um, said daddy. I really wish I hadn't said mysterious daddy. That just makes you said me mysterious. <laughs> look, if you you need to update your Twitter handle to mysterious daddy, um, <laughs> but you know because you bring so much of yourself to the character, they do tend to have like quite similar vibes to them, uh, which people um, just warm to me, and I think they just you know I, yeah. I I fill a void in their in their lives that they never realised was there. I think. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing parents. you say, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear a bit about where these characters came from. Um, obviously, a big portion of our listeners are mm-hmm. people who are into role-playing games where the creation yeah. of characters and then um, sending them off on these, these long adventures where they might find out they are the mysterious father of someone or other um, that might, might eventuate. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously creating characters is something that everyone in role-playing is very familiar with. And you went in you had kind of character posters so you went in knowing what your characters were called and Mm -hmm. at least something about them how did you how did you come up with these characters obviously keith grant was in some sense created long ago for steven yeah just just Um, the name it takes one of the hard parts away because i think a lot of the time with the soaps we have um you know part of the joy in the soap opera uh, every every time we do a soap, because every soap is themed. We've had um, Deep Space Nine Eye. We've had Mirror Mirror Mar, um, which is a fairy tale one. We've had um, you know uh, thir- Thirteen the, mu- uh, the soap, which was a sweet a set of sweet arrow Valley High. Um, we had um, Lyle Baywatch. So part of the Lyle fun with each, of, with, with each of the soaps is coming up with names that suit the theme of the show. But with Keith Grant. It's just always Keith Grant. So in that way, it breaks the theme of the show because you've got, like in Lyle Baywatch, we had, we had Anita Brake. Oh, no, she wasn't actually there in the time. We had, um, she couldn't perform because she's working on Saving the Planet with COVID. This so, was in Base um, Anatomy. Lyle Baywatch was Bay's a while Anatomy. ago. But oh, Bay's, sorry. In, Bay's Bay's in Bay's Anatomy, we had Dr. Shelley Bay and Dr. Evans Bay, who were a married couple. Uh, named after Bays, and then we had Greta Point, which is a location. Mm-hmm. We had Anita Brake, who couldn't end up being there. We had, to, we had Dr. Samoyed Shepherd, who's named after two different kinds of dogs. Basically, you just come up with very soapy names that fit the theme. And to be honest, the names is the kind of the the least important part. It is of absolutely it. the least important part. Like um, the name can be anything. The name can be anything that you think is fun. And then the the second thing you've got to decide is what's my role. Yeah. Um. Because, of course, if you're trying to flesh out a world as we are, you know, we're going, okay, this is a world where it's an animal hospital and there's going to be a lot of people who work at this animal hospital. What kind of, what roles do we need filled? So you need, like, the people in charge, the people who are the underlings, you need the people who are sort of affiliated. So, you know, we had the the head of surgery. You need the administrator. We had a receptionist. We had uh, just general vet staff. We had the guy that was the the town supplier, like the animal animal goods supplier, who turned out to be the baddie. Um, But, you know, you sort of just have to sort of work out all the roles that are needed. 
You forgot the chaplain, probably the most oh, uh, critical the character. I'm so sorry. Of Keith Grant was the was the animal chaplain. <laughs> so is there, really is there anything else that you you come up with beyond the the name and the role? Obviously, that that kind of gives you a grounding. But it seemed to be by the time that episode three was rolling on, there were all these very rich relationships that had been established, and um, the characters were kind of very strongly differentiated, and the kinds of things that they did and the way that they was kind mm-hmm. of responded to problems and challenges was yeah. any of that developed in advance either so privately th- or in, in a group or did it all just come out of being there together on stage so i think this soap a, is different yeah i think this soap is different from other soaps we've done because we're still sort of uh, our soaps are sort of a year or so apart from each other generally so we spend um time coming up with you know in, in, in previous soaps we spent time before the show thinking actually what do we want our characters to be? What are our relationships to each other? And, and how do we think about that whilst not plotting or developing plot for the show itself? Thinking it's really sort of come up with some relationships and saying, actually, I, I really trust you. I'm, I'm nervous about you or, you know, something, there's something going on between us and I don't quite know what it is. But this year it was more, we spent a lot more time just practicing playing together um, and diff- as different characters from different shows. So, so not, not, working out our characters as as they are in, um, in Bay's Anatomy. And um, that was, was a very different approach, but it actually meant that we were really used to playing with each other, but could spend time developing and finding each other's characters on stage. So this year there was, there might've been a bit of internal development within each other saying, actually, I'm, I'm the chaplain. This is how I want to approach it. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm head of surgery or, or, or something and, 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 and the like. But we went in not knowing what to expect from each other's characters necessarily outside of what their role was. And that was, that was a first in a while, I think for how our subs have been. Um, but I think yeah. the work and we I would put say in that going the other, in, the other, oh yeah. I was going to put in going in was, was helping build the relationships and the, and the, uh, between the players rather than the characters, which meant that we could trust each other enough to, to really mm-hmm. bounce off the character development. I, th- I thought it was really an interesting. Yeah. Um, Cause it's a really, yeah, it's really it's really easy to sort of get bogged down in character decisions before you started interacting with other people. Like I think that's something we've fallen into before at the trap, where you know you go, cool. So my character is I don't know my character is Keith Grant, the chaplain, and he loves being a chaplain, but he has this dark secret, and I've already decided what that dark secret is, and I've already decided which characters that relates to, which then means that whatever the other players have pre decided when those things bump up against each other, either, either, you know, you'll have the extremely unlikely thing that your secrets totally work narratively and, you know, wow, what a great story you've got going on. Or one of you is going to have to drop everything you've planned and you have to change. Whereas yep. what we've sort of, like Stephen was saying, you know, we practiced um, working together, which means we were more focused on listening to each other and paying attention to what happens when, uh, for example, because we spend a lot of time working on objectives, what happens when someone who is really focused on acceptance meets up with someone who is really focused on money? Like money is their bottom line. Everything they do is about getting money. And they meet someone who just desperately wants to be friends because they just want to be accepted. What happens when those two people clash? Do they like each other? Do they not like each other? You don't have to have decided that beforehand. You just have to know what's most important to my character. Is it uh, redemption? Is it? Um, is it... You know, what, what did I say before? I just said the words before. Mm, money. Is it money? money? Is it redemption? Is it acceptance? Mm. Is it respect? You just like, we, we did a lot of practice of just going, what is one objective for your character that's quite sort of overarching, 
but doesn't lock you into any particular narrative. It just tells you how you'll respond to what other people mm. give you. And I think that's really valuable, especially, I mean, like relating it back to role-playing games, if you don't know what the DMs brought you and you don't know what the other characters, what kind of people they are, and you're trying to work on that, if you just know, if someone presents me with a choice between uh, looking after my friends or getting paid top dollar, <laughs> you know, you know what kind of choice you need to make. And then the way you make that choice changes how other people feel about you. Because if you see someone, I don't know one, why money and acceptance are the two examples in my head right now, but <laughs> it's fine. You know, good you ones. See if character, good ones. Yeah. Great. <laughs> if you've got a character who's, who's like friendship is the most important thing and I just saw you choose money over us, then what does that tell you about that relationship? You get to follow what comes up rather than going, no, no, I can't follow that because I've got, a, I've got this narrative in my head and I've got this idea and I've got to follow it. Like, it's so much more interesting when you both get to go, oh my God, what just happened? Let's, let's follow that down its little wormhole and, and see what pops out. And I think, I think if you um, use the, the tools that are available to you in that sort of development, and you think about actually who is your character, what is your character likely to do and play true to that character, you can get a very much, a much richer story mm. out of it, a much more richer narrative experience than you would if you were just... Um, yeah, well, watching player, watching you know. the, the soap play out over the episodes that I saw, I watched three of the, of the 10 episodes, it was um, really easy to see how the way that you were listening to each other on stage and building on each other's, um, each other's offers and, and the things that you were doing just, just made these characters come alive in all kinds of really, really interesting ways. So the, the way it worked obviously is um, you were following the format of a soap opera and for any given scene, there would be two or three, sometimes more than three, but pretty, it wasn't terribly common um, characters up on stage and um, you would work through a particular uh, issue or some dynamic would occur between those two characters and there would be some transition, some, something would change and then mm -hmm. on to the next scene. And um, so that's the other thing that I wanted to really, really briefly touch on. Um, across those 10 episodes, you went through just an astonishing number of scenes because I obviously have experience working together so you're able to get to the meat of a scene quite quickly and, and fire mm. on through them. But you covered a, an enormous amount of ground. It would, <laughs> the the <laughs> amount of things that happen in that, in that soap opera are mind-boggling. There were, what were they? Were they chickens? Were they, was, that, was that the roosters? There were roosters. There were thousands of roosters. 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 You were there for the roosters? I'm so sorry. Uh, there no, was, it was a, hilarious. A revolution. <laughs> there, were, there were all kinds of amazing things that, that, that happened. <laughs> so yes. um, as, I, as a person who runs a lot of story games and role-playing games, one of the things <laughs> that... Um, I think about a lot is how you manage kind of pacing and staging and how you draw a scene to a close and say, we're done with this bit. Let's go on Oof. to the next bit. What's the it's next such bit a big question. be? And watching what you yeah. did, it seemed, it seemed um, very fluid, a very fluid experience, but also I could kind of see the mechanics of it. I sometimes, um, people would almost be coming on to start a scene and they'd see two other people had jumped in and so they'd back out. Sometimes mm -hmm. there, there's a director role that you shared around who would sometimes call for some mm -hmm. kind of scene to happen. It seemed like sometimes um, our, our friend Dee, who does the sound and music for, um, for our live shows, the Doceratops live shows, he was working with you as well. It seemed once or twice that he was kind of indicating things for you to do so. It seems yeah, so I, I, it was really hard to keep track of how you were doing that. So how were you making things happen? It's a group effort. Yeah. It's very much a group effort. I mean, basically, 
you get different approaches and different improv shows. And in this one, we kind of have a combined thing where there is an onstage director and that person has a microphone and a notepad so they can sort of keep track of what's going on. And they have the power to say, these two characters are in a place doing a thing. Which, to be honest, word for word, I have given that direction. Two places, yes, two, yes. two people are somewhere. <laughs> Something doing is a happening thing. somewhere. And people are talking. Yeah. And so those characters go, great, and just go into the scene, which means that you've taken the pressure off all the players to go, do I need to be on stage? Is it my turn next? I'm not sure. Ooh. We also gave everybody permission to start their own scenes. If they did have instincts where they went, actually, I really want this to happen next. I think this will be great. They could just walk out and do it. So we gave everybody the permission to do that. Um, and along with that, we also had the permission to like, I don't know that we used it at all, but I have in the past vetoed scenes, like as a director, people have come out and I've been like, nope, go off. <laughs> That's not happening yet. Or like, you know, just edited it in a way to be like, I see what you're doing. I don't think we need it yet. Come back in a second. Um, we also have, so that's the people who can start scenes. The directors or the characters can basically start scenes. And then in terms of ending scenes, you've got a few options again. You've got the musician can notice it. So our musician, Liam Kelly, uh, Grill Gilligan, who was beautiful. <laughs> um, he, could, he could just start playing music loudly and that was sort of the cue for people that they had to sort of look into each other's eyes meaningfully or stare out into the audience because it was the end of the scene. We also have Darren who has the power to bring the lights down on a scene. And again, that's a pretty clear cue. Hey, the scene's finished now. Um, and then the other option again is other people coming on and starting a new scene while your scene is sort of still tailing, tailing off. And generally we only did that where it was going to be a sort of like the scenes were linked in some way, like there was some sort of mirroring or simultaneous action happening. Um, so that's sort of the mechanics of who starts a scene, who stops a scene, knowing when to start a scene and when to stop a scene is like such a huge question <laughs> and like improvisers learn like you study it's it's one of the hugest things because i mean you need to learn how what is, what is a beginning what is a middle what is an end and in a soap opera yeah. yeah and in a soap opera you kind of actually just chop the end off you just want the beginning and the middle and a bit of a cliffhanger and then you keep going so it's a genre thing and it's a technical thing I think, I've just got so much to say on this. I think the simplest thing is to go, two characters in a scene, we should know what it's really about. Like, not what it's about, about, like, two people on stage are on stage discussing the latest uh, um, surgery that they did. I don't actually care about the surgery. I care about how those two characters feel about each other or about how they feel about the thing they just went through. So by we should know it's the end of the episode because we can see we can see what is important. You know how the characters feel about each other and you know what's at stake. That's how you kind of know, okay, great, we know what the scene is about. And then what's, you know, like what, is this something that can be resolved? Is it something that can't be resolved? Uh, is this a scene that's going to be chopped off with a cliffhanger? Um, and all of that just kind of happens on the fly, which is, like, I, I don't know, there's no formula. You just, yeah. It's how, how do you feel about that, Stephen? How was that big long ramble? Oh, that was it was a beautiful ramble. You know, yes. I can listen to you all day. Um, the <laughs> it is it is a thing that you sort of you work on without realizing you're working on it. I think for a long mm -hmm. time, and then actually, you just you get a sense of what works. And there's a sense, if something's going on too long, you can just feel it in your bones. 
And mm-hmm. it's either when you're on stage, you can some most of the time you can feel it um, when you're on stage and you sort mm-hmm. of try and find a way out. But if you're not, then you can sure as heck feel it when you're off stage, especially if you're as a director. So there is a real sense of going, actually, what is the scene? What is the point of the scene? What do we need to get out of it? And how do we get it there? Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's not always clear what that thing is, it becomes clear during the scene. Um, mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, then the director's job is to either find a thing to make it about or to end it as a nice piece of scene background, right? Um, but it's 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 one of those things where you sort of, by spending a lot of time rehearsing the the, the art of telling stories and, 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 and putting scenes together, um, you're in a much better position to then sort of use that experience and, 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 and skill you build, or that muscle you've built up over those years to, yeah. to, to and, you know, when you're, when you're playing in the ring, as it were, yeah. um, it sort of comes to the fore. Yeah. Sure. I think the easiest yeah. handbrake is just like, uh, what is this really about? And your That's characters it. can straight up say that. Like they can say, one character can say to another, what is this really about? You seem angry, but I don't think that's how you're feeling. Or like, what is this really about? You keep talking about fixing the bicycle and I don't think that's what's really important to you right now. Mm. And yeah, so do you have that within a, within a scene as a character, you have that sort of really simple handbrake of, you seem emotion, let's talk about yep. that. Mm, and yep. then as a director, you can, one of the easiest things again is to just say like, Keith Grant opens up about how he's really feeling. Or Keith Grant gets to the point about what he's trying to ask Dr. The number Shelley of Day. times I have heard that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a specific yeah. direction. And yeah. the number of times I have had to make up a question or a thing that I've actually been feeling because often sort of get on stage yeah. and you just like being on stage. This is the thing. Like, <laughs> I get on stage and I just like being on stage. Uh, and so I'm in the scene and I'm enjoying the scene. And then I get this direction that says I have to make it, I have to reveal the emotional secret I'm actually trying to portray. And then I have to decide Keith yeah. Grant's emotional journey in that moment. Yeah. And that could be why I'm a dad so many times. I mean, who knows? But that's also like, that's where, you, yeah. that's where your listening comes into it, right? Because exactly. the director has clearly seen something where they've gone, something needs to happen here. And it looks like that character is, is is hedging they're not they're not delivering on something and the audience is all waiting Mm. so you have to like if you get that direction if someone's like you have to make a decision right now you have to be like what was just said to me what just happened that should have affected my character that that Mm -hmm. so far hasn't and so you don't actually have to invent everything you just have to pay attention to what's already there i think that's a huge thing is that you don't have to walk into a scene and go, all right, I have to come up with 3,000 clever things. You're like, no, you just have to pay attention to what's all happening. The mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, 3,000 roosters. Yeah. With so yeah. many that, roosters. That, that so is many roosters. really fascinating. So basically anyone who's been following the role-playing design team for the last couple of decades knows mm-hmm. how much has kind of been borrowed and taken from improv kind of step-by-step-by-step by step by step to enrich mm-hmm. what, what's possible in role-playing. But I've, I haven't yet seen a game implementation of the kind of directorial role that you've just been talking about there. And I think it's, it's mm-hmm. really, really interesting the way that it kind of gives you a, a, the power to prod characters very directly and specifically. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there's, there's something that's kind of. Uh, I absolutely think that's something that the dungeon master ought to be, you know, or game master or whatever X master mm-hmm. um, role you're playing or whoever is playing is. I think, I, I do see the, the biggest uh, you know, analogy of, of, of the director in that role where 
it's not just about what happens next, right? It's not just about what's the next challenge. It's the yeah. it, you're, you're, the job of the whole group is to tell a story, mm. and the job of the game master is to curate that story or or or, or, or to um, keep that story moving along and nudge it in the right direction and sort mm. of make help the characters, help the players make choices about telling the best story possible and so sometimes that's often that's in you know plays out through the scenarios that are built up um but also it's if you've got the right if you've got the right um people playing the game with you and the right and the right and, and you trust each other and, and and wanting to sort of tell a story together as opposed to just you know kick a dice around occasionally then you're actually going to be telling a much more fulfilling and, and nourishing, I think, mm. uh, story and having a much better time yeah. than um, just sort of killing some dragons and clearing out a cave, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I think so. And what, what you're just saying makes me think that it's not just the kind of game master, dungeon master being able to move the game along by prodding, prodding the players, but as a dungeon master, if a player told me, I think there's something that you're not expressing here. I think there's an element of the story that need, you need to bring out mm. a little bit more. Mm. Like that feels like a really um, kind of incredibly rich kind of thing. I, I, no one has ever said anything like that to me in the decades <laughs> and decades I've been doing these games. So it just shows yeah. obviously that there's, there's still a lot more to learn, a lot more techniques to be stolen from, from improv people like yourselves. Anyway, our conversation has been very, very rich and um, I hope Wonderful. it's been enjoyable to other people because I've loved every second of it. Thank you very much. You're, You're welcome. welcome. That conversation gave me lots to think about. In terms of Dungeons and Dragons, I think the things that I'd highlight to think about are, um, does your character need a backstory? Maybe your group of players can discover some rich history between each other as you play. I'd expect that the the way Dungeons and Dragons has this focus on um, hunting for treasure and fighting dragons, it, it provides a kind of grounding structure and that will kind of absorb the bulk of the game's um, narrative energy. So you likely won't need to improvise huge dramatic reveals like the sorcerer is secretly the cleric's father. Um, You just don't need to do anything on that scale. But allowing space for smaller discoveries to happen, it can lead to really rich characters, amazing character relationships. Um, I think it's it's a really great road to go down so so you don't need to do the three pages of backstory you maybe don't need any backstory at all you can just work together with an understanding that you can make it as you go also i think um it's great to hear them talk about how they come up with scenes together is if there's a scene that you want to see in your game you can ask for it you're you have that power um you can say, I want a moment with the Dragonborn to ask if they will ever forgive me for my mistake. Or I, I, I want someone to notice that I don't talk about my hometown anymore and to ask me about it. You don't need to wait for dramatic moments to arise organically. You're allowed to give the game a shove. As long as you don't script out the outcome of any of this in your head. As long as you're not kind of trying to um, order everyone else around and, and boss what's going to happen. If you're just trying to discover something cool, something unpredictable, and you want to give that moment a chance to happen instead of just crossing your fingers and hoping it comes about by itself, well, you're totally free to do that. Work out what fun you want to have in your game and be active about getting it. 
There's lots, lots more in this conversation. Um, heaps of things to think about. But I want to close by mentioning a game that hits many of the facets of the soap opera show that they did. The game is called Primetime Adventures. It's by Matt Wilson. It's been around since the early aughts. A third edition was released a few years back. PTA is um, it's the game of making a television show. So you work together with your fellow players to devise the TV show. You create the main characters and you play it out episode by episode. Most of you are playing characters in the show. Uh, one of you will be kind of the, the director producer of the show, but it's possible to play even without that role and just have everyone playing the game with no GM. I've been in some amazing games of PTA. Um, probably most memorably, there was a game that I was in run by Steve Hickey about a cult compound about outside a, a small US town. Some of our characters were in the compound, some were out of it. Over the course of the game, we made discoveries. There were hard choices. The tension just um, ratcheted up. And it was it was like an HBO show that we created together over the course of the game. The game system, Primetime Adventures game system, is really useful in how it helps you do that stuff. It supports you to create characters that are kind of loosely defined at first. But they work as little story engines. They hone in on specific dramatic questions that give every episode some teeth. It's got a great set of tools for deciding what scene comes next and what that scene will be about. It's it's just clever in so many ways. It's got so many brilliant ideas in it. And and I love it. Primetime Adventures, amazing game. Seek it out. Give it a look. It might be something that will um, turn your group's game play on its head it certainly had a huge impact on mine and the way that i think about gaming and what is possible in games well worth seeking out i will put a link in the show notes to make that a little bit easier thanks for listening to diceratops presents as always we'd love to hear your questions your contributions your feedback if you're enjoying please rate and review and tell a friend thanks this week to jared baker stephen youngblood and jennifer o'sullivan our theme music is The Sunday Song by the K1500 Project. Check out all their music, link in the show notes. Find us on all the socials at DiceratopsNZ. And lastly, let the good dice roll. <laughs>